0: I fully respect decisions of people to say, so Sophie, it's enough, I can't no longer. And I would probably find myself in that group when and as I would think that my Mm. contribution is really not going to make a big difference and on the contrary is contributing to a not positive outcome. And I go back to the point that I never forget my first years of experience in refugee camps at the border with Sierra Leone and Liberia because... Those were the times where you are confronted with the why you're doing this job, mm. with the reality of it. So you cannot forget that. You know, mm. you cannot sit down and just think, oh, well, I'll write another paper or write another policy or write me. That remains and, and I don't want that to go away. So if I can't do something that is decently okay, then I, I think twice about keep on doing it.
1: Donata has worked on conflict dynamics for about 25 years. That started with an entry-level job with a non-governmental organization on the border of Guinea and Liberia. It's passed through increasingly senior advisory roles, consulting, policy-making at an intergovernmental level. All that informs her current role as Director of Political Affairs for the UN Special Envoy for the Great Lakes. In one sense, this might sound like a straightforward story, a a narrative, a logical progression. But it really isn't like that. What we're talking about is a series of self-starting, purposeful, and often very risky moves to try and find ways to make a contribution. That includes really trying to play big with the last few roles that have been at some of the absolutely key nodes in in the conflict and security space. So for me, this was a really rich set of reflections. What drives and sustains that kind of motivation? What happens when it's frustrated by events on the ground that you cannot control? How does all that balance with other aspirations in life, being a partner, a parent, when there's no guarantee that it will all be worth it in terms of visible impact? This is one step forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Well, I'll, I'll start at the beginning, as I as I usually do, from where we're sitting now. If you meet someone socially and not a aid worker in the peculiar Nairobi bubble of yeah. <laughs> expatriates, but if you meet someone in, in a bar or at a a function for, for your kids, for example. How do you explain what you're doing for a living
0: now? In fact, I, I was just in that situation recently when I was back home in right. Italy, and I had to explain to a group of very different and diverse people. I like to describe my work and what I'm doing following ways. So I design dialogue and peace processes, mm-hmm. uh, which basically mean processes that bring conflict parties together around the same table where they can discuss and agree on on peaceful way to deal with the with their situation the differences the different interest positions and and so on and so forth so that involves analytical work so mm-hmm. analyzing the why and the how the the conflict is there and how these uh, conflict parties can come together on a agreed path towards mm-hmm. peace it involves mediation and dialogue work, and it also involves identifying and designing and implementing projects that might help uh, the transition from a situation of conflict to one of peace and stability. Um, So this is really how I would describe in simple terms my work. Do people get that? Uh, the design piece and dialogue processes they get when I explain the, you know, the mediation and dialogue, mm. I think what is difficult for people to understand if they're not from our sector mm. is conflict and peace. So mm. it's the concepts so of what do you mean by conflict beyond the big violent conflict that we see on TV? Because mm. a lot of the work that we do doesn't really have to do with the violent conflict but with a big, big conflict. Um, events, conflict events you see on, uh, on the media. It has to do with more subtle conflict dynamics. So it's difficult to explain that, yeah. what exactly, what kind of conflict you're dealing with and what kind of peace you're looking for, mm. which is not necessarily a peace agreement on CNN. It's mm. the kind of change dynamics and relationships. So that one I, I think is a the, is the challenge. So you end up
1: giving wildly inappropriate analogies like <laughs> Afghanistan and, and Libya and Syria and this sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, but that's been a that's been what twenty plus years now. Yeah. So if we roll back to the mid '90s, I guess. Correct. What were the first steps in that regard? Where did you grow up and go to school? How did you How did this even come on your radar?
0: Yeah, so I uh, grew up in uh, Milan, Italy, that's where I was born, yeah. and I uh, went to public school throughout mm. my uh, academic career.
1: Good.
0: Yeah, yeah, Check. yeah. And and I wanted to be, I very early on, I got interested in politics, that's mm. uh, half of my family was very active politically, so mm-hmm. I was interested in politics, and then I realized that I was also interested in traveling, so I made one plus one, and I thought, I want to be a diplomat. Uh, however, unfortunately, those were the years where the political situation in Italy wasn't very. Um,
1: this is late Berlusconi, no?
0: That's the Berlusconi time. Yeah. yeah, that's when the Lega Lombarda, which is one of our party, took power mm-hmm. in uh, in Italy, mm-hmm. in uh, northern Italy, and Berlusconi started occupying the political scene. So, uh, diplomatic career in that context, uh, as a young woman, um, mm. did not uh, did not seem possible, really. So that's one. And number two, so so I started looking a little bit uh, more broadly, and then I was at university, and someone came from New York to introduce the JPO program, Young Professional Program of the United Nations. Okay. And at the time, so I went to a presentation of this program, and yeah. at the time, I was doing comparative politics. I yeah. loved it. And I thought, well, this sounds like a good plan B for me. At the same time, I, I had the, the opportunity to move to New York, and to get an internship at uh, UNICEF, right? And that's how it all got started.
1: What was the internship in?
0: It was uh, child rights. Okay. So it was in at the time child rights unit, which yeah. doesn't exist anymore. And now uh, that's a good, that's a good question because it, it's the first time I was really confronted with some of the conflict issues that mm-hmm. then I decided to focus on. I was reviewing the reports of the member states to the. Committee on the Rights of the Child. It's pretty dry. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty dry. dry. Stuff. But, you know, if you're a young yeah, no, intern sure. and all of a sudden you're reading un- security, um, yeah, it's United it's Nations cool. reports, well, it seems like heavy
1: stuff. Like it's uh...
0: Yeah, but the important, interestingly, so I was uh, doing a lot of, of the countries from conflict affected regions or conflict affected countries. So there were a lot of issues around child soldiers mm. and refugees and all of that. And that's, if you like, the first time I was confronted with the reality of people in conflict. And I guess I started really thinking about, hmm, okay, well, that's something that could interest me. Mm. And what I also realized is that it's all great to read reports, but I, I really felt an urge to go out there and to try to do what I was reading mm. in a real situation. I wanted to stay with UNICEF. I thought that that's it. You know, I'm with the United mm-hmm. Nations. I go to the field with them. This is so impactful and this and that. And I went to the, um, to the human resources persons to seek advice because I was, you know, I was really young, just graduated. Ooh, where can I go? And this lady, she actually saved my career because she, she, she basically played a mentoring role with me. And she said, look, if you go with the United Nations at the beginning of your career, it could be great, but you could even end up in an office, not really being exposed Mm. to the field reality, why don't you try with an NGO? And I remember telling her, no, 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 I'm fine here. I want to go with UNICEF. But then I started writing, uh, sending my CV around. At the time, you had to send, a, I think you had to send a letter. So. <laughs> you I've, I've certainly sent
1: hard copy CVs.
0: So. <laughs> Somehow, you know, I, I was sending these CVs around, OK? Yeah. And uh, one of the few responses I got was from uh, Terre des Hommes, mm-hmm. so Swiss-based uh, non-governmental organization which dealt with children. And they immediately offered me to go to Guinée Conakry. I guess they needed someone badly. Mm-hmm. And I wrote and they said, OK, she speaks English, she speaks it, uh, French. Perfect. shes uh, They needed a very junior person. And, of course, they were going to pay very little and all that, and I didn't care because I was at the beginning. Naturally. And that's really how I ended up in Guinea-Conakry. Huh? I yeah. don't even think I've heard of Conakry when
1: I accepted the job. Were you in Conakry itself, or you are in sierra leone I, w- I
0: was half the time in Conakry yeah. and half the time in uh, the forest area in Zirikore, mm-hmm. where um, the refugee camps at the time the Sierra Leone and Liberia conflict were going on. Yep. So, where a lot of the um, really tense regional dynamics were playing out in terms of humanitarian crises and the conflict things Mm. in that region. Great experience. I would go back tomorrow. How so? Well, I mean, I would go back to those times tomorrow. Well, it was a great experience because first working with a relatively medium sized I would say, a non-governmental organization, you do a bit of everything. Mm. You're not sitting in an office pushing buttons. You do a bit of that, but you're out and you have to learn a lot. By yourself, you have to be creative. You have to work with a whole different range of partners from government to other NGOs to the UN and etc. But most importantly, I think you're closer to people you work with. So in my case, I was working in the refugee camps most Mm -hmm. of the time. And I was working in support to the children on protection issues in the refugee camps. I I think that was for someone coming new... Young, coming to that reality, it was a very impactful experience. Mm. Uh, something that really um, framed my understanding of the situation and what I wanted to do and, and also helped me understand what I was best at. Mm. Uh, but I really liked the personal interaction with all these different people. For someone who gradually got interested in conflict, being at the border with Sierra Leone and Liberia, in the mid-90s or, you know, 97, 90, 97, 96, 97, was uh, extraordinarily interesting, uh, not only because the wars were going on, which is terrible, but all the issues around the natural resources, the blood diamonds, and the way the international community and regional partners were were not being effective. So it was a very, very strong first experience that uh, marked my choices going mm. forward.
1: Did they prep you much? When we look back at the 90s, I think the stereotype is that there wasn't too much attention to uh, understanding the politics of the sub region and, and even the culture in, in, in some cases. Yeah. Was there, was there much induction into that sort of stuff, or were you just kind of dropped in place?
0: No, there wasn't. But you know, I have even mean, it would have been great to have more yeah. no induction. But I am of the opinion that um, if you do this work and if you choose to do this work, partly it's upon you to make sure that you know as much, you understand as much, and mm. you you prepare yourself as well as possible, and you take at the beginning, wherever you are, because you're never going to be an expert on everything. Mm. You know, you're not, can't be an expert on the Great Lakes, and Guinea Conakry, and Afghanistan, and other places, and you can go on as many courses or preps. But you really need to take the first few weeks, if you like, months, if you can, of time in a country to absorb, learn and be not passive. That's not what I mean. But be on the learning side of things after having done your reading and your understanding and etc. And try to make sure that you have a network of people, partner, counterparts that you interact with. Because to me, the most important learning process needs to happen there and then. And I think it's very much your responsibility as a professional to do your prep. Now, it would have been great to have a little bit more support and yeah. to also have more resources, you know, when you have a problem or we don't, don't understand something.
1: I think I'm hearing your present perspective there more than the perspective of probably. someone in their mid-20s who wants to, probably. Like charge around and do things and...
0: Yeah, probably. Uh, be have we made mistakes? Have I made mistakes? No. I still make them, so yeah, a little bit more uh, structured Mm. approach would have been helpful, definitely.
1: So you are on the the border of Guinea, Liberia, Sierra Leone. You went from there, I think, to HCR briefly doing...
0: That was in Western Sahara. Tindouf, the Mm -hmm. refugee, Sarawi refugee camps over there. It was just a registration, pre-registration for the famous referendum for autodetermination, which yeah. has been in the making. One of, one of these days. <laughs> one of these days, since 71, I believe, if I yeah. remember correctly. So we were registering uh, voters uh, for the referendum. And what, what I really liked about that one, first, the context mm. and the issue. There are few territories nowadays that are still waiting yes. for self-determination. So the whole issue of terra nullius, you know, mm-hmm. an area where that is claimed by different uh, yeah. by a country by people that dynamic was incredibly interesting and then it was interesting because it was in the middle of the tensions between Morocco and Algeria and who mm. supports one and the others and uh, secondly because the whole protection work that UNHCR does i think is very relevant and mm. i learned a lot
1: through mm. that experience in one sense it's quite narrow I and mean, registration is quite narrow yeah. and technical but in another sense it's that isn't a much more politicized context. I mean, refugee yeah. movements in, in the Mano River region are obviously politicized, but like here it's sort of high politics inter-country stuff forms the backdrop for the, yeah, definitely. for the work.
0: You know, the thing is that I realized that I'm a, I'm a very political kind of person. You yes. know, I studied political science and this and that, and I have a political family background, but that that's really the politics of conflict and peace mm-hmm. and the decision-making Mm-hmm. around it is what interested me. So it wasn't providing the humanitarian assistance to the children in the refugee camps mm. or registering refugees to vote. It was the the reasons behind this situation exists and who should be doing what to mm. change these situations because ultimately, in most conflict, not all of them, but very many of them, it's it's a matter of a certain decisions that are taken that generate conflict situations. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in dealing with the politics around conflict and peace, and I wanted to work with team with situations that could influence the decision maker and those who can make it or break it when it comes to Mm. these situations.
1: When you say interested in the politics, do you mean you felt it was more important or sort of a root you know the uh, the root cause, if you will, or the, or the the point of entry for real change, or did you enjoy the sort of interpersonal and uh, interest based interplay between people? Which part of it was?
0: I think it was both. So, to give an example, for instance, if you're looking at a situation of conflict that is very much linked to natural resources, I look at it from the perspective of okay, who are the main actors who are spoiling or who are playing a negative role in Mm -hmm. regards to this uh, exploitation of natural resources. And that's where I want to focus my attention and that's what I'm going to try to bring together. Versus uh, let's look at the community level, work and how, you know, the land issues, that kind of thing. That's what I can influence and I think that's what uh, can make a difference. That's my assumption. Maybe I was wrong, you know.
1: (laughs) Well, well, We'll come back to some of the some of the learning there in a bit, I think. Just to get the narrative in place. I guess that makes sense then why you did actually end up at UNICEF after that. But working on child rights yeah. issues, which is exactly that a yeah. uh, meeting point of the of the political framework and sort of the practical and this is still in West Africa, no?
0: That's still in West Africa. Well that's where I got the famous is that I heard about university in the first
1: time. You did get a yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good job.
0: So, <laughs> so I went to, uh, to West Africa as a young professional officer with right. UNICEF, yep. working on child rights and protection.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and it's exactly, first of all, it was regional, mm-hmm. which I think it was greatly interesting because the learning from one country to the other mm-hmm. and the interaction with a variety of uh, political contexts. Secondly, we were covering Western some countries in Central Africa. And so there were a lot of conflict dynamics going on mm-hmm. in the region. And the important thing there that happened and that really facilitated my my understanding of the issues is that um, my supervisor, who was the regional, senior regional child rights and child protection advisor, she had been a former minister mm-hmm. in the region. So I was really exposed to the politics of reforms on child rights and child protection legislation or programs at all times. And she was kind enough to really take me with her around and expose me and send me on my own. So I I think I got the opportunity to really see that interface. And because some of the countries were uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, on the Security Council agenda, I also got the chance to be exposed right away to the other decision makers, the ones who are sitting in New York, Mm. Security Council. So that started building up my understanding of the what you need to do if you really want to change things in country X and Z or in the region. Mm. And importantly, we did a lot of work as well with ECOWAS, the West African Economic Community, which was pretty active in the conflict. Mm. So I got exposures at different levels. And that reinforced my my, deci- my commitment and my decision to uh, try to change, you know. I go back to the decision-making thing, which is complex. It's not one person taking a decision, mm. but influencing that. And I was lucky. I was really lucky to be in that office. The head of the regional office was a very politically-minded person. Mm. So she really, really looked at, um, you know, how do you influence versus let's just go out and do programs kind of approach.
1: Slightly ahead of its time, in a way. Yeah. Certainly, that's the way that UNICEF Definitely. in particular has, has that's the direction they've gone over the last yeah, 20 yeah. or so years. But in the, still in the 90s, no? late 90s. That yeah, was, it was late 90s. That was not the norm, I would say, in the development Not at all. Yeah, sector. yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Now, of course, it was also, perhaps, I was very young, so I was so impressed by what we were doing. Yeah. But I do think they were a little bit ahead of the game. Anyway, it was a, it was a quite eye-opening uh, experience. Also because you you could see it, you know, you could see how bad decisions and, and bad situations led to the humanitarian catastrophes that we were dealing with. So there you, you really think, that's what I want to change.
1: A female minister from West Africa yeah. in the 90s. I mean, it's not unusual per se, but it's definitely a small minority at that time yeah. and still good early, yeah, good early role model in, in, in many definitely. ways, though,
0: I think. Yeah. Her and uh, the regional director from the Middle East, mm-hmm. very empowered, very political, very strong woman. Both of them had a very strong uh, technical background, but, you know, well-rounded individuals mm. who were there to do their work, mm. and they did it, as far as I can remember, with commitment, which was very helpful at that time, which was still the beginning of my career, you know, because you mm. need to believe in what you do. And uh, I do it, yes. <laughs> yeah, you do, you do, you, awesome. you, you need to believe and then you need to believe that things are possible, you can do things. You can try to influence you, you need all of that. Uh mm. even later on, <laughs> but perhaps even more later on. We were discussing
1: this earlier, yes. <laughs> but that
0: empowers you, you know, as a young person yeah. who is out there uh in the middle of a of a different world from where you grew up mm-hmm. and you doubt all the time. Mm. A what am I doing here? B what am I gonna be able to do here? And then you see much older people with a lot of experience who are still there, still trying and uh, very committed and dedicated, great role models.
1: So speeding up the temper, the progression of the timeline slightly, you within then in a, in, a, in, a, in a whole slew of different <laughs> conflict-affected countries, yeah. five or six different yeah. places. Um, and this is with DFID, the yeah. UK Department for International Development. A lot of Tremendously different situations mm-hmm. over the course of what, seven or eight years, yes. I guess. How did that play out? I mean, how is it that you came to move
0: from one place to the other?
1: From one place to the other, and how do you even, the way you described it in terms of uh, understanding local context and taking the time to do that, that must have been enormously difficult.
0: To answer a question, it played out really great. <laughs> um, uh, I, I decided early on in my career.
1: Yeah,
0: not that I would go from one country to the other, but that I wanted—I uh, didn't want to be geographically focused mm-hmm. in my career. You mm-hmm. know, some people choose. I'm gonna. I like to work in Africa or in Central Africa, and mm. you know, I'm gonna become an expert, or they, they become by default.
1: I—I
0: mm. I kind of tried to specialize in understanding conflict, so being really good at the tools and the skills and and the competencies that you need to. Understand conflict and conflict dynamics. So one thing is, for instance, doing conflict analysis mm-hmm. and, and peace processes and different experiences. And I thought that it would be more interesting for me and mm. more attuned to my personality and my, my desire. I'm, I'm going to admit it of seeing different things and being operative and, and work and live in different places that it would have been better for me to become more of an expert subject matter mm-hmm. than an expert on Nepal versus Afghanistan. So that's where I saw myself. Because of that, whenever a new opportunity came, if it was an interesting opportunity, if it was uh, the greater responsibility, I mm-hmm. tried to take it, and that's why I moved between one and the other. But um, I honestly, I see myself contributing at a certain point in time to mm-hmm. a certain part of the big picture. Mm-hmm. And then if there's an opportunity to move on, uh, if it's really great, then I go and I think, oh, now I'm going to contribute to this other thing. Mm. There's a little bit of that that uh, moved me around. But then, like I said, I also had uh, personal instances in between. Uh, So children and having to also support my uh, husband career. Mm. So, you know, sometimes you try the second option because you have other considerations.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit? Because one, one of the reasons I would say that's hard is how you can integrate that with all the other things one wants to do yeah. in one's life. Uh, and moving every two years or so yeah. is, is enormously stressful in that regard. It creates a number of potential issues, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you managed those more or less during that period, even.
0: Yeah. We were lucky. I was lucky. We were lucky. Um I um, both my husband and I, so the the personal level is is the most difficult, right? Mm. Because me I could move any every every one year. I for that, that impression. I get that impression, yeah. now. First of all, you you need to have commitments to your work. So it's not that I never moved because I wasn't happy with my work. Mm. I moved because something else was equally exciting and I thought, wow, that I'm gonna contribute big time. Mm-hmm. So, me was I loved all the places, all the countries I worked in, and I loved most of the teams. And when I say most, it's 95% of the teams and the bosses I worked with.
1: You can get a lower
0: percentage if you like. No, no, no. You don't need to call the percentage. <laughs> and I always did it in consultation with my teams, with my supervisor, with headquarters. So, it was a almost, I, I like to see it as it was a, almost a corporate decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah? that I was part of, although it was me sure. saying, I want to move. On a personal level, well, you know, we were, I was at the beginning of my family life, where mm. both my husband and I were more flexible, I guess. Mm. And uh, when my daughter was born, she was very young, and that's the time where you can still move around. And in my brain, I had this thing of, now it's the time, because later on. You cannot do it. When yeah. the kids start going to school and I knew I wanted to have a family and I wanted to have another child and etc. So take advantage of these. You make as much experience as you can. And then when you have less choices in terms of moving left and right, you can use all this gained experience uh, more effectively.
1: You said that your assumption was at some point you would have to settle yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Um, and it kind of worked out that way. Because did. That sort of span of time came to came to an end in one sense and you were fixed in one spot yep. for a few years yeah was that personal professional both hopefully
0: it was both really yeah. uh professionally after all these countries and all these different work pieces of work in other countries a little bit different i felt that i wanted to reflect a little bit take some distance from field work and think, how does it work? Does it work? If we talk about aid, for instance, aid in conflict, affected, and fragile environment, some things work and a lot doesn't really work in terms yeah. of how partners support countries coming out of conflict and fragility in terms of how countries themselves manage the processes. I, wanna, I, I wanted to have more time to think about these dynamics and try to think, well, you know, what are the things that don't work and how can you change them? To give you a very concrete example, I realized when I was with DFID, which is a major donor, that it was really difficult to spend money effectively in some environment or to spend it effectively going through some of the partners that you have to go through. And I wanted to think about these things and I wanted to be able to influence them using my experience accumulated in the field. So that's one. Mm. Then number two, um, I had to leave DFID. Mm. Which so far I can say has been my best employer in many regards because of security clearance issues. So it wasn't a decision, I had to leave the okay. FAD. Yeah? No. <laughs> uh, I couldn't get the level. Because of, of,
1: because of your nationality? <laughs> not because of your extensive yeah. criminal record, I assume.
0: No, yeah, because of my nationality. No, it was because I couldn't get the level of security clearance that you need. Yes. And I, I suppose that's because of my nationality. Yes, in- so So yeah. it was all. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah you can, you can. So there was a time when I started thinking. Okay, given that I have to leave, do I want to try the same kind of situation with another organization or do I step back a little bit? Mm. And I decided to step back. Uh, That's number one. Number two, I wanted to go back to Europe because of uh, family, children issues. Mm -hmm. And number three, the opportunity to work with the OECD came up to work on the content and fragility portfolio of the organization of economic operation and development. And, uh, and so I, I, that's it. So we came back and it was great. And being back in Europe, it was wonderful. So mm. I stayed as long as I could, let's put it that way.
1: Was that very different? I imagine it must have been working at that international political level. Having said that it's important and interesting to focus on the political determinants of success of uh, development and in political and security outcomes. But now you're uh, a level removed from that in the other direction in that it's the slightly bizarre, I will say, world of, of donor politics and sort of legal and normative decision-making yeah. at that level. Yeah, That must have been quite different. It must have been uh, possibly quite difficult in some ways, I would think.
0: Yeah, it was very, very different. It was, uh, at times, quite frustrating, Mm. because I think at heart, I'm more of a, out there working with the people who are involved in Mm. the situation kind of person. Mm. So the abstract policy-making, big frameworks, and Mm. all of that was uh, was difficult to get my hands on um, at the very beginning. But you know what I found, um, what I think helped me settling into that context and dealing with the situation is that I think I was one of the few in that environment who was coming from a lot of field experience. Mm. So I I, I had the impression, and I still do because I was reflecting on that experience, that I could bring that into the picture, so I could use my concrete experience gained over the years
1: mm.
0: to influence decisions, uh, frameworks, and and then you mentioned an important word, which is the politics of aid. It's still mm. politics, right? So mm. I was in my environment. I was dealing with decisions by the likes of the UK, the US, and other big, big, big donor countries on how they were going to spend their money in conflict-affected environments or in country X and Z. Mm-hmm. So I kind of put the two together. You know, I'm here. I'm bringing all this experience. So I was using it. I was using my experience. I was using my contacts from the ground. You know, I was leading this international dialogue on peace building and state building, which brought together a group of conflict-affected countries and a group of donors. So mm. I was still in the middle of trying to change some big decision making. It was frustrating in that you're abstract. You're away from Mm. things. And, uh, you know, you never know if you're really influencing yes or no. Mm. Uh, You write policies and then they sign policies and then it's all non-binding. So, if the um, countries, the member states want to implement what you wrote in your policy or not, it's really beyond you. Mm. So, all of that is frustrating. But I, I, I found it exciting to try to influence that level. So mm. we were, for instance, working with uh, the World Bank, trying to discuss in the um, International Development Association allocations. And um, it was uh, it was really interesting to, to work at that level, mm. to influence the billions of dollars that were going to be spent. You couldn't have done that being in a PRT in Afghanistan. You had to be sitting either in the World Bank or in a member state or the OECD, for instance. So that really made the experience wonderful and great. And I am delighted I uh, I spent those years in the, in the OECD. Now, impactful, yeah, somehow, but it's uh, it's even harder to demonstrate what you contributed to, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I, it must be. I mean, that, for me, that would be difficult, I have to say, where there's so many variables that you can see what your input into that process is, but the outcome may be 10 years down the line or it may not happen at all for a whole range of
0: yeah, Absolutely. And when I figure out that I had to write annotated agendas Hmm. on and on and on, because Hmm. that's one of the ways you influence the decision-making by writing an annotated agenda, when I figure out that it was significant part of my work. Mm. I was desperate. But then little by little, you know, it's also a phase in your life, and sometimes you have to compromise with situation. And what I really like, to be really, really frank about that experience, is that it was a time, which maybe is not the case now, I don't know, because the whole donor age uh, configuration has a little bit changed, where there was a lot of freedom in the space I was working at the OECD. Mm. You could really interact with the member states and come up with new ideas. So the whole international dialogue on peace building and state building, which then faded away as a process, but mm. at the time when I joined, and if I joined for that, it was an interesting idea. So mm. the OECD, which primarily deals with aid, mm-hmm. so with OECD members and how they're going to spend their aid and aid effectiveness and all of that, for years and years and years, had been telling the conflict affected in fragile countries, well this is how aid is delivered and needs to be delivered in your countries. Yes. And then all of a sudden, well all of a sudden throughout the years, or mm. we were there with these conflict affected and fragile countries getting together and telling the OECD counterparts, no, actually we think we know better about mm. how you can support us. So it was an interesting dialogue. Yeah. It was called dialogue because it was a dialogue, interesting dialogue going on. And I've learned a lot. So I, I guess that also saved me because I wasn't in the mainstream policy making and monitoring and her. It was the, I was still dealing with my countries, what I consider my countries. And they were stronger and stronger and more and more vocal. Mm. So I was kind of doing mediation even there. Yeah. The work that I did and I really like doing in the field, I was doing it somehow at UACD as well.
1: I remember we discussed this briefly some years ago. Now, uh, which was closer to the events, it was a, a more. It was an interesting time and, in some ways, an optimistic time with the with the dialogue and the, and the New Deal that, that um, was linked to it. And in terms of that fundamental tension as between recipients of international assistance, including aid, and the countries that are paying for it. Was there genuine progress there do you think? Is that was that momentum sustained looking back in, in now 2020?
0: I think it was sustained for a little for a little bit. There was genuine progress at the time. Mm. For me seeing these groups of countries which were very diverse from the Democratic Republic of Congo mm. to Afghanistan to the Solomon Islands and Timor Leste and a few others. So there was progress in that that group really got together somehow. And they had a strong leadership within the group from a few countries. And I think the, the nature of the discourse and the interaction and the dialogue with the OECD countries, the major donors did change slightly. I think this group uh, felt increasingly empowered to try to influence the decision making around aid, how it is spent around Global framework like the the UN, even uh, peace architecture. Mm-hmm. So so that was uh, that was very positive. Now the New Deal is a, is an agree, you know, is a piece of paper with uh, some some commitments, if you like, some guidance on how mm-hmm. some of the things that you should do if you want to be more effective. But I think more importantly than the New Deal as a piece of paper was this growing of this group and the stronger statement and the stronger positioning vis a vis the rest of, if you like, the international community. So that was positive. What I think, though, my impression when I left, and I've been following slightly, is that the momentum was really lost at some time, because whether the New Deal was a piece of paper or not, it was the glue mm-hmm. that cemented a new kind of partnership between these different groups. Mm. And uh and it didn't play that role. I don't think neither party invested enough in using it to change the way they were working, or a few of the things that they were doing. Mm. And it then became one group after the uh against the other somehow. You know, I was in the middle already of some of those dynamics. A little bit of revanchism mm-hmm. one way and the other. And then I think that this group of uh conflict affected and fragile countries went on their own because they thought we, we are the ones who uh, need to uh, to set the agenda so we don't need the OECD, we don't need the donors, we're the ones. So I think the momentum was, was somehow lost. And the other point, and I'm going to uh, stop there on this particular issue, um, how impactful that was in mm. terms of changing things in the countries that I have serious, serious doubts. And I've, I've actually seen because I've gone back on and on and on to some of these countries, West Africa, even you know Afghanistan, I've been back a few times. I think the impact on the ground is uh, was uh, was was really difficult to, to notice and and, and and that's a great imitation of this kind of processes. They are so high level, they involve a group of people who meet, discuss, agree, meet, discuss, agree, and then when you go back to your country or to your organization or to your department, let's say D F I D, the trickling down doesn't really happen. Mm. So what's decided at this global level, it's a problem with many of these global issues, mm. doesn't really influence what happens in a country, I think. So that was difficult and frustrating. But overall, a good experience. I've learned mm. a lot from there. I've learned about being in the middle of two groups who basically want the same things, but in different ways. Mm. It was, uh, you know, one that thinks, is there time to rule? And the other who thinks, no, but we're the one giving you the money. How does that work? Being in the middle of this kind of situation was uh, an eye-opener in so many regards.
1: So you, you moved on from that to almost the opposite, which is what I do, which is uh, uh, consulting and, and jumping yeah. from one thing to the yeah. other. Yeah. Is that, was that in direct reaction to the... Highly orchestrated, highly political nature of that work that you just wanted to do the opposite, or there's something else going on there.
0: I think there are two main reasons really for that. One, I, you know, I was coming from the field, I went to the OECD, so I was in that kind of environment, Mm. policies, and this and that. And then I realized that I wanted to do things my own way. I had this dream of being able to decide what I do mm. and how I do it mm. and work with people who wanted to work with me because of what I I thought and what my experience had taught me or mm. what I could draw from my experience. I felt a little bit, you know, after the several years with GFID, which I again, again was great experience, four years with the OECD, I really I didn't want to be in another institution, in another big institution. I, want, I wanted freedom. I guess that's it. I wanted to be free to do things that I uh, believed in or that I thought were interesting. And then number two, I had my second child and I wanted to spend time with my second child and with my first child as well. <laughs> and I figured that I needed to be a little bit more in charge of my calendar mm-hmm. agenda, time uh, management and all of that. And uh, and that was was really important in my decisions. And you know, some people prefer to be in a more institutionalized situation when they had young children. Mm-hmm. And me, I wanted time. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have time. And I also didn't want to have the excuse that I mean, that to have to justify myself with my kids. That sorry, I have a meeting or I have a mission coming up. Uh, I cannot come to your school this with my eldest one, and mm-hmm. I cannot take care of my little young child. Mm. So the two things combined, I went into consulting. And the third reason I calculated the whole thing was that I also saw that increasingly organizations, like not only the OECD, but, you know, I kept great contacts with DFID. They were outsourcing a lot of the really interesting work. Mm. You know, you're the one who they send out to mm. country X and Z mm. to do more hands-on work. Mm. And I, uh, I, I wanted that as well. I wanted to go a little bit back to my initial roots, if you like.
1: It's uh, it's a bit at odds with the self-definition as a as a political kind of person, yeah. though, because that is a role in which, by definition, you have zero Absolutely. political influence. Yeah. So I imagine you would struggle with that. I did. Aspect to some extent.
0: Absolutely, I did. I hated the fact that I wasn't the one ultimately sitting mm. with menis- with the ministers, if you like, or other political yeah. decision makers. I really didn't like it at all, one. And then what I didn't like was, um, of course, I, uh, you know, I make my recommendations, I write my report or I facilitate the meeting, but I wasn't the one following up. So your capacity to really influence what is done... Mm. In a given context, is very, very limited as a consultant, unless you're in a particular consulting situation. Mm. I didn't like that at all, you know, that I didn't know what uh, was going to be done with my work and with my ideas. And I, I didn't like at all that I didn't have the agency behind mm. me. You know, I was always trying to sell myself and try to sell my ideas. And, and people would always ask, yeah, but, you know, who, who do you work for? You know, like when, when I wasn't on contracts, you know, classical contracts, when I was trying to do things that I really wanted, you know, but who do you have behind? And I'm like, mm. well, a group of experts. That that wasn't very, very, very easy, and I didn't like that at all. I missed having the power of an influential organization behind, if you like. And I think that's the, the lack, particularly of the political exposure and capacity to influence, is what brought me to my current job.
1: Perhaps. <laughs> Which is Perhaps it's mean, it's hard not to think of this as a series of uh, as a couple of zigs and zags in a way. Because yeah. I mean, this is the opposite. This is a completely the the premier multilateral organisation, yeah. despite its many flaws, in a overtly political role doing intergovernmental politics. Yes. And would it be oversimplifying to say that's in reaction to? The lack of agency, as you described it.
0: Yeah, I, I was missing. I was missing that. I, I was missing being part of a bigger picture, if you like. I was missing having. Um, I was missing politics. You, you you rightly pointed to that. So this one came up, and uh, and I thought, yeah, that's just perfect. You know, an organization that has as mandate peace and security, mm. that this is a political work director of political even the title is good yeah, director Sounds cool, political yeah. affairs and uh, and I'm ready now after all these years and you know it was a zigzag it's true mm. and it was here and there but in my in my mind it was a, it was a sequence mm. you know I was going from NGO to more institutional mm-hmm. loads of field experience to influence in the policy making I need a little bit of freedom so I want to be consulting mm-hmm. and now yeah, let's go back with all of this and let's see the, you know, let's go back into the politics of conflict and peace and mm. peace and security and etc. And I really think that's what the UN is or should be about, depending on the experiences. Mm. But uh, if you think about the potential security mm. council, permanent members, so the big countries deciding, you're interacting with leaders in this region at different levels, including non-state actors, leaders from armed groups. It sounds like the perfect, perfect situation for someone who, you know, sought this career path and implemented my career path. So
1: here's the, here's the difficult part to me. Well, perhaps just the part that I would find difficult. So right from the very beginning, you identified this sort of quite ambitious kind of impact that you wanted to have. Yeah. You, I mean, you just referred to the potential of the UN as a multilateral organization, being part of the bigger picture, looking at basic decisions, major decisions that, you know, in turn have massive consequences across a whole range yeah. of issues. So the difficult part is, how do you stay motivated? How do you see that some of that is being realized yeah. when it is such big picture stuff, when you look back over 20x, what, 24 years to be said, you know, what stands out to you in, in that regard? And what keeps you in the right mindset, if yeah. you're thinking I am doing something?
0: I, I get brought two things, two different levels. Mm-hmm. One, I tend to be, I'm, I'm kind of a visionary person who is excited about the potential and the ideas, mm-hmm. and I always see... Progress and I'm contributing to it. So I, I picture it mm-hmm. in my mind and in, in my professional life. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily need to see the tangible impact of I've done this, I've influenced that, and this is the consequence of it. Mm. So I think I developed throughout the years a capacity or a willingness <laughs> or both to be happy with the idea of contributing as opposed to needing to see the result tomorrow.
1: That that implies quite a, not in a bad way, an abstract way of thinking about the world, like a conceptual sort of model of a situation, as opposed to a very tangible and immediate way of looking at it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's one part of the story, and it is. is. For me, thinking about a regional peace architecture, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: even in abstract, but then thinking about how do you then implement it, but I don't need to be the one doing it. But being part of the setting it up and influencing it and having the key decision makers agreeing that they're going to do A, B, and C, it's good enough, yeah? So even if I don't see the immediate impact of that, I'm, I'm excited and I'm motivated by being able to the influencing process of, let's say, a regional peace and security architecture, just to give you an example. So that is abstract, and I have to admit, and I probably wouldn't have said it 20 years ago, I find that interesting and fulfilling and it tries my thinking and my innovation. That's one. But there's also something quite concrete and probably I had it more in, in my earlier uh, career years. You can, if you manage, which I think I've done at times, if you manage to, for instance, influence even smaller decisions. Like when I was with UNICEF in Rwanda, the support in the government of Rwanda in uh, revising some of their legislation to provide better support to children who had been orphaned throughout the genocide. Mm -hmm. So being able to deliver that kind of thing, a new piece of legislation or a new decision by the government to do one thing as opposed to the other, that I find extraordinarily fulfilling. Even if I know that impacts on a restricted group of people even one person that's enough for me and throughout my career and even now I know that that is happening so I'm not going to mention things I'm working on right now obviously but if I can see that as a result of something I've done there's a new process that is happening that Mm. is helping improving one particular situation that's good enough for me that's impact that's good enough now years and years ago I thought it was going to be different right I thought I was really going to be able to make a big, big change. Now, who knows, maybe in 20 years' time, my kids or someone else will say, oh, well, that happened, because I don't know, and honestly, it doesn't really matter. But yeah. And then I think I have a duty to keep on being... I really think I have a duty to keep on being motivated and trying to... Why, why a duty? Yeah, because I chose this career. No mm. one imposed it on me. I chose to continue with this career. It's an important field of work. Like, of course, every field of work is very important. You know, if you're a doctor, you're essential. But uh, I I owe to, to to myself and to the people I engage with to do as great as I can and... Mm. Uh, to keep on being committed and to do it seriously with, with a vision of it's worth it. Now, if something is not worth it, well, I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't try to do it or I would pull out of it.
1: Is there a, is there a downside to, to that or a, a flip side to that in the sense that if you are looking at these big processes, huge structures, a lot of the time, and we've worked in a number of the same places, they're going to evolve in the wrong direction or have evolved mm-hmm. in the wrong direction over the, the time you've been working on these issues. Um, and certainly Afghanistan or, or, yeah. or, or Congo or you know, other places, you could nothing is black and white and unidirectional yeah. of course, but you know, on the whole, it would be easy to believe that that things are not trending in, in, in the right direction. Given that way of thinking about, it, have you struggled with that? at all? Have there been cases where things have gone in the wrong direction and uh, it does feel like you're not making that contribution, or worse, you are making your contribution and it doesn't matter?
0: Yeah. I struggle with that all the time. Mm. All the time. And I think I struggle with that all the time in the past as well. Now Mm. even more, Mm. because I'm thinking, well, I should be better able to influence in a positive direction. And I do think that very sadly, some of the countries I have worked with and where I had a great experience, both professionally and humanly, because that's also mm. why I'm interested in our work—the human side of things—have have gone indeed uh, in a in a in a in a non so positive direction. And it does it, it does uh, it really makes me think a lot about mm. what we are doing as professionals in this field, mm. what the organizations were working with and for, are doing, and uh, it makes me doubt a lot. So much so that even when I had my little breaks mm. in between one organization and the other, and when I did consulting, I very, very seriously considered changing course.
1: Mm. And it's
0: not that I'm not considering it for my future, because it, it is... It is extraordinarily disempowering to see things going wrong. Now, what I was taught by my several supervisors and mentors, mm-hmm. most of them, all of them, much wiser than me and with much more experience, is that, yes, but what if you were not engaging? You know, would things be better? Now, for me, the problem is that, yes, I need to try but sometimes when you uh, when situations are really not going in the right direction and you're completely useless, you really have to wonder, shall I continue to work on this issue in this sector, mm. in this country, with this organization or not? And you really should consider the option of pulling out if mm. you feel that you're not influencing positive change. Now, of course, I don't want to be arrogant. I never really had, you know, I'm going to change Afghanistan or the situation things go in Afghanistan. I think we're all aware of the much bigger geopolitical uh, considerations and domestic considerations. But uh, it's a great disincentive to continue to do this work particularly looking at um, you know you do a lot of work you try to do it well you try to implement the right decisions and actually decisions are taken completely independently from your work sometimes you mentioned that sometimes it does happen yeah. but I have no solution for that. Mm. Some people are eternal optimistic and they think yes it's going badly but then it will be, it will improve. I'm in the middle I try to keep on thinking okay well the situation is getting worse mm. and uh, so we need to try to improve it now my work or my organization directly are influencing the negative developments, that for me is a no-go. So I would probably pull out if I realized that I can't change it, I can't influence it. Maybe it's a sign of defeat. I was told that in the past because it might have happened on a few occasions that one of my moves out was because I thought, there's nothing else I can do here. Mm. But... Uh, you gotta balance your integrity, you know, your sense of integrity, with the real life and real politics and real, real everything else. But it's a tough, it's a tough choice in our line of business. I think very, very tough.
1: Do we do a good job of that? Um, do we do a good in job in terms of people taking? And you said this right at the beginning: is that yes, institutions obviously need to do their part, but also individuals have to take responsibility to understand where they're working and in this case, you know, understand when things are not working. Are we we introspective or self-critical enough in the sector about that, recognizing when a change of course is needed, when we're not sort of individually playing a constructive role, or do we err too much on the side of the optimism that you mentioned?
0: This is a very interesting question. I would answer that way. I'm really encouraged, in the past few years particularly, by seeing many of my former colleagues, still friends, pulling out. And when I say pulling out, it's not admitting defeat, okay? Mm. Pulling out of situations that they felt were going in the right direction, they couldn't influence, and so on and so forth. Not more and more, but a significant number of people... Highly respected professionals who, throughout their life, they work with a lot of integrity and commitment, and etc. Saying that's enough, I can no longer be part. Now I don't know if it, I'm seeing it now because we're all growing up into our <laughs> besides the, besides tired. the you know the the actual age, but we're growing up into our profession and mm-hmm. we are more confident about what we want and not want, and so on and so forth. But I'm really encouraged uh, by the number of former colleagues and, and friends who are taking a very critical and conscious decision about their career and how they can either continue to work in this field but do it differently mm. or even stop working in this field because they don't feel that they can play a positive role. I respect that very much. I think no one should be, f- should feel forced or compelled to keep on going because your organization keeps on going mm. I don't even necessarily blame it on an organization when they are not able to keep it up and keep on being relevant because mm. if you think about big organizations like the UN you might have a leader senior leadership who wants to change but you have the member states mm-hmm. so you know you really need to also be aware of the limitations that even organizations have. But as an individual, I fully respect decisions of people to say, "So, Sophie, it's enough, I can't no longer. And I would probably find myself in that group when and as I would think that uh, my -hmm. contribution is really not going to make a big difference and on the contrary is contributing to a not positive outcome. And I go back, you know, you, could, you mentioned you know, at the very beginning, I go back to the point that I really, I never forget my first years of experience in refugee camps in Eastern um, uh, Guinea, mm. at the border with Sierra Leone and Liberia, because those were the times where you are confronted with the why you're doing this job, mm. with the reality of it so you cannot forget forget that you know you cannot sit down and just think oh well i'll write another paper or write another policy I'll write me that remains and and i don't want that to go away so if i can't do something that is decently okay then i i think twice about keep on doing it
1: and this is obviously very different to how you would have how you just did describe your mindset when you're taking the best available internship and then rushing off with an NGO because mm-hmm. they had an opening because yeah. you wanted to do stuff, right? So yeah. it's a very different mindset. Would you have done things differently at that time knowing that? Or is it more a question of natural sort of evolution as a result of what you've been doing? I mean, if you went back, would you do some things differently knowing what you know now?
0: I don't think so. You I know. really think I was following my... Uh, Ideals, my urge to mm. be out there to do things, and you know, patience is something that I—not that I'm super patient, by the way—but not uh, <laughs> But it's something that I learned a because I got a lot of feedback on how impatient I was professionally. Right. So, you know, my performance evaluations throughout the years—that was
1: a constant. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad Italian stereotype. I it, should not encourage. Is, I should not yeah, encourage this. It us.
0: is. I'm not going to shy away from <laughs> admitting it. Uh, plus I'm from southern Italy, so you yep. can imagine. But no, I would not have, I don't think I would have done things differently. Mm. I think I had, uh, even at the time, I had a choice. You know, I was living in New York. I was, uh, mm. having a fantastic time. A yeah. uh, young woman in New mm. York working with the UN. But I, uh, I did what I did because I wanted to do that and I would uh, probably go back and do exactly the same. Mm. What I would do differently though, I think I would, try to focus a little bit more. So I had to go through this process of try this, try that. I could have benefited. And even now, I think I would be stronger professionally if I had a little bit more focus. So either becoming a bit more skilled or experienced in, for instance, mediation and dialogue, as opposed Mm -hmm. to covering a broader range of peace building and state building and conflict prevention and et cetera, and et cetera. I mean not too technical, like not an expert on constitutional making mm. processes, but a little bit more focus uh, in an area where I felt that I was good at. mediation really would be one. Mm. Uh, that perhaps could have also helped me be more in result and impactful oriented. I kind of navigate through experience. I did a lot of uh, self-learning, self-teaching, self-discipline, self self-that. Mm. And I've tried to take a, much advantage of situations, but I would have benefited from a little bit more. Maybe doing a PhD, I don't know. Something that, mm. you know, broke me more down on becoming really, real added value to a situation.
1: Is there any anything else that you had in mind to bring up that we haven't talked about? Yes.
0: yes. Can I make a comment about... Uh, being a woman in uh, in this field
1: of work, absolutely. Working. It's interesting. The only time that came up was in a positive way, and I wonder whether you're self-censoring in that regard.
0: Well, uh, we'll get that. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I never really felt, to be really, really frank, that uh, there was a difference or not difference in opportunities mm-hmm. that I was given as a woman. And I've seen many super competent women at all different levels mm-hmm. working in my field of work. So that's all very great, and conscious of the efforts of uh, organisations by mm-hmm. like the UN Secretary General to begin with to bring more women, more senior women, and et cetera, et cetera. What I was reflecting on, though, in the last few months, as I was, I mean, a kind of a thinking, you know, where am I going in the future? Existential moment. Let's yeah, it precisely the middle, middle, uh, middle life crisis. I realised that. Uh, I think I had a lot of pressure on me very, very often. And I've been wondering, and I think that's the case, a lot of it was due to, uh, it, more recently, not in the last couple of years, but as as I grew senior in my profession, I felt under more and more and more pressure in terms of having to demonstrate my value versus I'm here because I have demonstrated my value in terms of um, you know comments such as uh, you're, you're, you're too aggressive, which my reading was that I was trying to be assertive. The old classic. And it really yeah. came out recently when I was thinking about it. It's exactly the old stuff. Mm. And whereas I don't think my career has been affected at all,
1: yeah.
0: as a matter of fact, I am wondering, you know, are these pressure points that I suffered through? And is it because I was a woman or not? And the old stuff, you know, like, how can you do this work having children? Mm. You pass over it because it's nonsense, right? Mm. Yeah, it's difficult. But if you're good and if you have good people around you, you can do many things. But I wonder, I'm left with a wonder about this thing. Mm. Is it still true that, uh, you know, we have it more difficult as women or not? I don't have an answer and I don't want to put, you know, I'm discriminated because I'm not. I haven't been Mm. at all. But I'm like, uh, there were instances where I felt something wasn't right. And I wonder if that has to do with it. Because, you know, part of my responsibility, if you like, as a senior leader is to, to manage teams, to mentor younger professionals. And, and I've been wondering, because anyway, you want to you keep on improving the working environment. Other than that, I, uh, I do really encourage young women to um, mm. take up this work. I think it's important for women, but for men as well, to mentor each other Mm. and to to go on. I think it's a a field of work where different skills and different capacities, including from different uh, gender perspectives, Mm. really help.
1: You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.